everyone, and welcome to the Las Musas podcast. My name is Emma Otegi, and I'm the author of Sofia Acosta Makes a Scene, as well as several other books for kids. Today, I'm joined by Terry Catasus Jennings, Sara Fajardo, Lakin Zaya Kemp, and Cynthia Harmony. On this special edition of the Las Musas podcast, we're going to be talking about Latinx Heritage Month. Terry, can you start us off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your book? Hello, everyone. My name is Terry Gathasus Jennings, and I am the author of The Little House of Hope, which just came out this June. It is illustrated beautifully by Raul Colon. And it is the story of a Cuban immigrant family who rents a house and makes it their home. When they find other immigrants, though, immigrants that need a place to stay, they open up their house and give these newcomers a place where they can get their life together, they can get jobs, and they can eventually go out on their own. And I am also the author of the Definitely Dominguita chapter book series, and that is about a Cuban-American third grader who outwits bullies and solves mysteries while pretending to be characters in the classics that her abuela read to her as bedtime stories. I'm delighted to be here. Sara. I'm the author of Paca Paca con la Papa. Alberto Salas plays Potato Hide and Seek, and it's a picture book biography about the world's most prolific um, potato collector of potato specimens in the world. Alberto Salas is an, a Peruvian agronomist and plant collector who relied on his childhood and his ability to speak Quechua to be successful in um, collecting the most potato varieties in the world that are now used to create new varieties of potatoes to help um, feed people across the globe. And it's illustrated by Juana Martinez Neal, and it will be out in 2023. Lakin. Hi, everyone. I'm Lakin Zaya Kemp, and my middle grade debut comes out September 27th. It's called Omega Morales and the Legend of La Lechuza. Um, and it's a fantastical novel about a, a girl who must trust her ancestral powers when she comes face to face with the Mexican legend La Lechuza. And it's perfect for fans of The Girl Who Drank the Moon and Palo Santiago and the River of Tears. Cynthia. Hi everyone, I'm Cynthia Harmony. I'm the author of Mi Ciudad Sings and in Spanish, Mi Ciudad Canta. It's a picture book illustrated by Teresa Martinez published by Penguin Workshop. And it's a story about a girl and her dog Pancho on their daily walks to Mama's Floreria and how they witness neighbors coming together to support each other in the aftermath, aftermath of the earthquake that took place in Mexico City in 2017. Awesome. It's great hearing about all these, these amazing books. Um, as I said before, I'm Emma Otegi. My most recent book is Sofia Acosta Makes a Scene for Middle Grade Readers. And next in September on the 20th, my new I Can Read series uh, called Reina Ramos. The first book is Reina Ramos Works It Out about a energetic, vivacious seven-year-old girl will be out on September 20th. So let's get right into our conversation today about Latinx Heritage Month. The first question I want to ask all of you is in all of our experience as Latinx creators, what can we do? What is needed to increase the numbers in Latinx representation in Kidlet 
currently the share of the books being published for children that are by Latinx creators is around 5% as opposed to about 25% of the population, right? We, we make up about a quarter of the population, only about 5% of the books being published represent our experience. How can we change that? What's needed? Carrie, let's start with you. It would be just so wonderful if we could change the minds of the publishers because they're the ones, they're still the ones that hold the keys to the kingdom. Uh, but on the uh, on what we can do is uh, encourage and mentor more Latinx creators through things like Las Musas and Latinx Pitch. And we should encourage not only um, the writing of issue books, but also the writing of fun books with Latinx kids as being the um, the protagonist, um, you know, there there are editors and imprints that are very much seeking diverse and Latinx authors, and so we need to boost the authors that are that are here and continue to encourage them and continue to boost all the books that are published and um, you know and continue to encourage the publishers to um, to keep printing our books um, so that when others see that the success that we as authors are bringing to, to the imprints, other imprints and editors will become uh, more open. Tara, what do you think? I think it's really important to remember that Lat the Latino buying power in the United States is 1.7 trillion. And that investing in, Lat in Latinx stories is really a good investment across the board for publishers. I think a lot of times, um, we're kind of overlooked and people assume that Latinos are not interested in um, purchasing books or watching movies. But I think that that misconception stems from an error in the publishing industry that they're simply not providing books and experiences that truly reflect who we are and the things that are important to us or even our stories. I mean, there's such a diversity within the Latinx community that I think is often not taken into account. Um, to the detriment of the publishing industry. And I think that a lot of the people who are in publishing are not coming from a Latinx experience or a Latinx background. And so they simply don't know what books to purchase. I think that's why we saw the whole American dirt debacle. Um, and so I think we need, to, we need to continue to educate the publishing industry, but the publishing industry also needs to take broader steps in really um, like hiring um, more Latinx editors and production assistants and art directors who can help kind of build awareness within their own houses about our stories and about different ways that they can use um, Latinx authors and that we only that we don't need to be limited to a certain type of story or things that have to do with our cultural background, but that within our diversity, we can offer a lot to other types um, of projects like I think that Jorge Lacera is a perfect example of his with this book um, zombies don't eat veggies that we can have things that have to do with zombies or that we can just write humor and 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 be able to add some some more depth to publishing in general but I think the biggest obstacle is really this lack of knowledge of of the Latino community the Latinx community and um and looking for ways to kind of penetrate the market by giving us stories and books that that resonate with our communities. Lakin, what do you think? So I agree that a lot of this is really systemic. And the thing about systemic inequities is that 
there are multiple factors in place maintaining the status quo. So increasing the number of books featuring Latinx characters written by Latinx authors is not necessarily as simple as just publishers buying more books from these creators. I think first we need to look at the pipeline to acquisitions. We need more Latinx literary agents, but in order for them to be able to do that work, they need mentoring. They need grants to help supplement their income. They need logistical and financial support to get a foothold in the industry. And the same really goes for Latinx editors. We need more Latinx editors who are going to see the value in acquiring Latinx stories. But in order for them to be able to create a sustainable career in the industry, they need to be paid a living wage. They need administrative assistance and they need to be allowed to work remotely rather than being forced to live in one of the most expensive cities in the world. But we also need more Latinx publishing professionals in leadership roles too, who will make the changes needed internally to better support their Latinx employees and therefore their Latinx authors. And then I really think that we need more publishers willing to invest in an author's entire career, which means larger advances making it possible for us to do this work full-time, maybe even providing authors with health insurance, acquiring multiple books from us across various age categories and formats so that we're not only publishing one book a year. We need publishing to be more willing to take on this financial risk because it's the only way to help our community make up ground and make up for the fact that we've been systematically kept out of traditional publishing for over a hundred years. And then as these supports are put in place and more of us are able to do this full-time publishing on a multi-book a year schedule, the more representation will end up on shelves. What about you, Cynthia? Yes, I think that, that that's really important, everything that's been shared so far. Um, sometimes we feel like there's not, not much that we can do to change what goes on in the, in the industry, although it's absolutely changes that we need happen, like more agents, more, more editors with the background, with education, like Sarah was saying as well, and all of these resources, they're, they're, they're needed. So sometimes I feel like it's, it's a little disheartening or uh, frustrating that we don't have that much as authors right now or creators or illustrators to change much of that. But I think something that we can do is really support our community. I think the more organized we are, the more we support each other, the more visibility we have, uh, the more we can communicate that message that we are here, uh, we are needed, these stories are successful, you know, people, of, of, of our community want them and, and read them and will buy them, but also beyond that, like the success of the, the movie Encanto is just showing like it just it's just going to go beyond, not just for the Latino community, it's going to go beyond. And it is like, as I was saying, it's a good business decision. So I think if we, we as creators, like that's why I think this is something we're discussing um, a little later, but that's why these groups are so important as Musa's and Latinx speech, because it it's an opportunity to organize and show how much we can do and how much we need this change. Yeah, so I'm gonna summarize what's been said and then I'm just gonna contribute another dimension that I wanted to add to our conversation about what is needed to increase the representation of our people in children's literature today. So several of you brought up the need to hold publishers accountable for the work they do both to find the audience, right? There's this misconception out there 
that the reason publishers aren't publishing Latin work is because they're not able to find a large enough audience, right? They're not able to find enough buyers. We know, because we know our community, that that's not true. We know that the success of Latin media in every other format, right? In movies, in music, any other place where you're seeing Latin media, hugely successful across all groups. So we want to hold publishers accountable to do that work and to recruit that audience into the book world. And similarly, we want to be, I think, Lakin, you did such a great job highlighting the importance of remuneration, right? I'm always thinking, why would someone want to do this work, right? Being a writer is hard work. It is labor intensive. I don't know about you, all of you, but I definitely work very long hours, many more hours than I would work in another field. I travel more. Um, it is a myth that because our work is flexible, because it is contract work, that we don't work as hard. So I think that when I think about why aren't Latin writers like running into the field, I do think because there's a there's a there's a, a piece of compensation that's missing there, right? This is hard work. This is work that generally requires, although we all come from very different backgrounds, it's generally work that requires a lot of training, right? To learn to be a writer, to hone your craft, typically but not always involves a college degree, and then some kind of training and workshop. Um, and years of chipping away and getting better at the work we do over time. That work needs to be compensated for Latin creators to, to, to want to be here and to stay here and to be able to thrive here because we can all love what we do as much as we love it, but we, we simply can't continue if the compensation isn't there. So those are two key pieces that I really heard is finding that audience, being transparent and honest about how we find that audience and the reality that that audience is out there. Um, if we can't find them, that's not, that's not like a force of nature. It's not that there aren't Latin readers out there. It's that we're not going to the right places to find them. We need to compensate authors more. And then the other piece that I wanted to add, and I feel really strongly about this one, is that I really believe that, you know, we talk a lot about this from the supply side, right? Of like, how do we get more Latin writers how do we get them into the game? How do we um, get publishers to really invest in us as a community? But I also think about the kids that we're writing for. And I think that the lack of book access that kids in this country have is a huge component, right? A component that I think we don't talk about enough limiting the representation of Latin people in Kidlet. The reason for that is because most kids get their books through public institutions, right? Kids get their books from public schools, from public libraries. Most kids are not going to be going out and getting $20 books or hardcover from their local bookstore. Many kids don't even live near a local bookstore. I would love it if they did, that would be a beautiful world. But we need to be honest about the fact that kids are getting their books from public institutions. And when we don't invest in those institutions, when those institutions don't have budgets to buy new books every year, when those institutions don't have librarians, when they don't have classroom libraries, when we're even dealing with challenges and bannings of books, it's limiting the, it's limiting our market, it's limiting our readership. And that to me is that that's the demand side, right? When we're talking about publishing, we're really talking about the supply side. But when I look at the demand side, I think if every public school district in this country had a line item for buying new books every year, which they should, because they sh kids should not be reading old books. 
if they had that line item in their budget and they were saying, you know what, we're going to aim to have the books on our shelves reflect the kids in our classrooms, publishers would be tripping over themselves to find us and to compensate us more because there would be such overwhelming demand. And so I do think about what can we do as authors to cultivate that and to shine a light on that issue of book access, because I think that our fates and the kids are tied right now. If they don't have access to books, we don't have access to those readers and vice versa. So I really hope that um, just focusing on how we're getting those books to kids and how we're expanding the power of public institutions of schools and libraries to buy books for kids. So the next question on our list is, what are the main obstacles? We've talked a lot about this from a systemic perspective, but as individuals, what are the experiences, the obstacles that you've had to deal with as Latin creators? Um, what's happened to you? You know, you can share any story from submission to book release. What did you personally go through, Terry? Um, so I probably have the longest history here of trying to get uh, published. Um, but I started about 20, more than 20 years ago and say in the year 2000, it was very difficult to get for a Cuban, um, person to get published. Um, and you know, I was, I would say that sometime now that my craft is better than it was 20 years ago, but not significantly. Uh, I think that, thank God that there has been an, um, an opening uh, more recently, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not enough of an opening. Now, I have been very lucky that the editors that I have worked with are very open, and they are supportive, and there are those editors, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't always that way. I, I don't have any particular story, just the fact that it took just so long to, you know, to, I had a Cuban story that's still to be published. You know, you guys, I'm sure have heard it before. It started and it's, it's. I think that now that Cuban story that I wrote 20 years ago, I have seen similar stories to that being published now. But 20 years ago, that same story was there and it wasn't blocked. So yeah, I don't have any big stories, but I know that there have been, it just wasn't done. Wow, Terry. Thanks for sharing that perspective. Sada. Well, I just want to thank Terry for your perseverance and really just continuing to fight the fight. I think it's so important. And your book, Little House of Hope, is just absolutely stunning. And, and it had me in tears when I read it. So I'm just really glad that you just kept on because I think that's one of the biggest obstacles right now is that I feel a lot of people don't feel like there's room for them in this industry or that our voices or stories matter. And I have to say that I feel like I'm really lucky because I ended up with an agency, Full Circle Literary, that really um, champions this kind of storytelling and these kinds of books. But I would say my main obstacle initially with even querying Full Circle Literary was a mental one. Because when I looked at the roster of, the, um, of talent, they already represented Monica Brown, who is Peruvian American like me, and they represented Juana Martinez Neal. And so I told myself, I'm not, I can't apply to, I can't query Full Circle Literary because they already have Peruvian authors. Even though my experience for Monica's and Juana's is so different and the stories I write um, are very different. I just had that mental block. And I think that's a lot of things, 
that's the, maybe the same story we a lot of Latinx creators might tell themselves that, oh, there's already a book about Day of the Dead, I can't write it, or there's already a book about something else. That space has already been taken when, when you look at the publishing industry, there might be like a million books about unicorns and no, no white writers questioning whether they have the authority to write another unicorn book or track book, right? But I feel like we've been told that that in these spaces, there isn't room. And I think that's a misconception that things that um, organizations like Las Musas is really kind of dismantling, that we realize that there is room for all of us. And I was very fortunate that the person who got me into Full Circle Literary was actually Monica Brown, who um, is just a champion for, Latin, for Latinx voices and, and up and coming talent. And she offered to critique one of my stories because we had met through Twitter and she liked it enough that she introduced me to her agent. And I would have never, ever, had it not been for Monica kind of extending that hand, um, I would have never queried them because I had this idea in my head that I just, there wasn't room for me and I didn't belong. And so I hope that things like Las Musas or um, the Kidlit Latinx Festival and Latinx Pitch can kind of help us build that kind of community. And so I would say maybe the biggest obstacle and challenge is that our community is kind of like a nascent community that's it's starting to really grow and, and be able to force more, like force the hand of other people and, and amplify our voices. Um, but in the absence of that, I think the experience of what Terry had, where you had to have this kind of thick skin and resilience, um, other people that don't have what Terry had might've dropped off. And I think that there's so many missed opportunities because of that. And so I would say my obstacles haven't been that much in the publishing industry industry itself but really kind of self-imposed obstacles and I have a feeling I'm not the only one. Lakin, what about you? What were your experiences? I think one of the main obstacles for me has just been how much I've consistently had to produce in order to continue to do this full time. I have two books coming out this year. I have three books coming out next year. And I often get a lot of attention and a lot of praise for the fact that I'm so productive and so prolific. In fact, when I was at ALA earlier this year, another author of color came up to me and she was like, can you please tell me your secret? I look at all that you're doing and I really admire it. And I just had a moment of clarity standing in front of her and decided to be completely honest with her and tell her that I'm not necessarily this prolific because it's good for me, because it's good for my physical health or because it's good for my mental health, but I've had to do it in order to pay my bills. And that's one of the trade-offs. I think when you're writing from a marginalized background, our stories aren't as in demand from the publisher side. They still look at them as sort of a financial risk that they're taking on. And so the advances are significantly smaller. And when your advances are smaller, you have to branch out and write across genres, write across age categories so that you can make up that gap. And so that's something that has really taken a toll on me. It's a pace that is not really sustainable. And I'm still kind of working towards that big major contract that is going to allow me to slow down a little bit. And then, you know, there's also been other experiences. I've experienced some microaggressions, just out and out racism. Speaking of ALA, you know, my debut novel, Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, was a put a bell play honoree. And it just so happened that right when the awards were announced that my publisher decided that all of a sudden they were going to change their policy and they were only going to print the physical seal on books that had won either the Caldecott, the Newberry, or the Prince. 
which basically excludes all of the yeah. awards that are focused on marginalized communities, right? Because there's the Puerto Play for the Latinx community, there's the Coretta Scott King Award, there's an award for, you know, Jewish authors, and several other communities are spotlighted in the ALA Awards, and they were no longer going to get seals from that particular publisher. And getting that news was really devastating, but then having to explain to them, argue with them about why and how that decision was incredibly discriminatory. It was a really painful experience. You know, I won't go into all of the details, but it is something that I warn marginalized authors about often is that just because you have a good experience with your debut doesn't mean that the publisher is always going to treat you that same way. I truly believe there is a honeymoon period and you will know when that honeymoon period is over. And, you know, that was not necessarily an isolated experience. I'm with multiple publishers and it's just, it's not uncommon to get an email that has a microaggression in it. It's not uncommon to be told no to something and the insinuation be that your community doesn't read. I mean, as we've been talking about, these stereotypes live in the back of these publishing professionals' minds and they're guiding how they make decisions. So yeah, it can it can be really exhausting just constantly having to have your guard up, constantly having to go on the defense and constantly having to educate people about the language that they use and how policies can be harmful. And it's just a lot of emotional labor that I think non-marginalized authors don't have to deal with. Ooh, that really spoke to my heart, Lakin. Um, Cynthia, do you want to talk about some of the obstacles you've faced? Uh, yeah, I, I think this is related to what we we're talking before about how the industry works and how much more representation is needed within the industry. And I'm lucky to have a really good agent. My first agent was also a really good experience. My agent right now is wonderful, but I've been, it's happened to me like two or three times already where I've, I've been on submission. Some editor really likes the story, um, really connects with it and just takes it to the team. And then it, it's like, going through the process and then when it reach out, reaches um, sales, then they they come back with the no. Uh, and then as well, I think uh, one of those times an R&R was involved. So we did that whole process and then it was like uh, a no at the end. So it's been more than once where I feel like it's more than just the editor that happened to, to love this story and, and was willing to champion it, but it was like, you know, all, all up in them, in the publisher where, who knows, like, I don't know what kind of representation they have, but I have a sense that they did not connect at all with the, with the story, with what, you know, what, what we, with the messages and, and supporting uh, underrepresented authors. So, so it's really like, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad because I also, in, in this experience, I won't get to work with that specific editor anymore even though she connected with these words. Um, actually, even, I think it was at one editor, it was more than once. It was like two different manuscripts and different times. And then she didn't get, I didn't get to work with that person. So it's, it's, it's just sad, but, but that's how it is, you know, set up that's, that we need more change within all of the levels. So that's my, my story. Y'all are breaking my heart. You're just, um, I'm, I'm, you're, you're just bringing up, everybody really has brought up 
so much for me. Um, I, I, so, so I'll tell you about a little bit about my experience and some of the obstacles that I went through and, and the different ways in which I identify with each of you. Um, I have not been around as long as Terry has, but I, my first book was published in 2017. Um, so that means that we were querying or we were, my agent and I were seeking publishers in late 2014 was when it was acquired. And at that time, what we were doing um, and what I was doing with that book, my first book was a biography of Cuban poet and national hero, Jose Marti. It's called Marti's Song for Freedom. When we were pitching that book, it was still seen as this very unusual kind of niche thing. For those of you who are not familiar with Jose Marti, he is somebody who was um, just widely influential in both Latin America and the United States, whose poetry is read around the world. And my agent will tell you a story about, you know, an editor who she worked with frequently when she got the manuscript, liked the manuscript, but of course had to create a profit and loss statement for her publisher that, you know, explained why somebody would want to read this book. And so she called to my agent and she said, when you say famous in Latin America, how famous are we talking? And my agent was like, very famous. Jose Marti is very famous. But one of those things where this is a household name for so many people in the Latin community and yet was unknown to this editor with a lot of power um, who didn't end up being the editor who acquired the book and was happily acquired by um, a wonderful editor, Jessica Echeverria. But that experience with submissions and with um, rejections there, I'm very familiar with. And Cynthia, your experience of something being rejected in acquisitions, which I think is something that every author experiences, but I think it really hits us harder as Latin authors because my experience with rejection and acquisitions has always been with younger Latina editors who connected with my work because we connected with one another, but they didn't have the power within their publisher to get the leverage and get their teams on board. And that's really devastating. And it not only limits our ability to publish, it limits our ability to have that good working relationship because there is something magical about working with a Latin editor. Um, I have many editors who are not Latin who I also love working with, but there is another dimension. And I'm sorry for every time it hasn't worked out. And Lakin, you just, when you just spoke about productivity, I just, um, you really spoke to me. I mean, because I am someone who has been at this for five years. I have made a living, but I've made a living in a way that really has put, I put my back into it. And I have often envied one of the things that I think all of us experience sometimes when you are at publisher conferences and you go, you go to these conferences where you meet a whole lot of authors is you meet a whole lot of people who have mystery money, right? You meet people who either have, you know, um, huge thousand incomes or they're independently wealthy, whatever it is. Um, the experience of being an author who actually needs to make a living is an awkward one. I mean, it's almost awkward to bring up uh, the fact that you need to earn a living and that you don't have another source of income. It can be vulnerable, it can be uncomfortable, it's sort of devastating. And what I've always told myself in those moments um, 
I'm like, and you just kind of gave me a different perspective on this is that I've always told myself that I'm grateful to have to hustle in the sense that I do think every work for hire, every, you know, deadline that's kept me up at night, every extra critique or consultation I've done, um, everything I've done, everything I've said yes to or gone out and found for myself has contributed to me as a writer and has made me a better writer. And so if there's anybody in the publishing industry listening to this right now, I want to highlight that. I want to say that having to do more work, especially in something that is a craft like writing, often makes us better at that craft. I think that we have all gotten better from having to work as hard, push as hard to get our work accepted by publishers, to stay in the game, to earn a living, to keep the lights on. And what Lakin just said about how exhausting it can be to work at this pace. And for me, I often think, you know, Lakin, you talked about like, all right, that big contract that's gonna allow us to slow down. I don't know that that's coming for me. Maybe it is. I mean, that would be great. But sometimes I don't think it is. And I do wonder, what does it mean to continue to produce at this pace? What does it mean for, I mean, I've probably got another 30 working years in me at least. So I've done it for five years. What is it going to mean over the course of 30 years? I don't know. I'm like, really like, this is why I'm shaken by your statement. Like, and this is why it's really affecting me. Um, but I think it's something we need to think about. I need to, I think it's something we need to think about. What do we do with all of this ability that has been honed through years of working at this pace that so many Latin creators have had to deal with? And how do we allow that to be sustainable in the long run? Terry, did you want to jump yeah, in? I did. I did. I think uh, what you mentioned about work for hire, I mean, it's, it's something that you do because you do need the income. But it's also something that you do because you want to stay in the game and because you want to be showing that you're that you're productive. Now, having said that, the other part that you said that it does make you a better writer, holy cow, you're working with so many editors and you're meeting so many deadlines and you're reacting, you're getting an agility in your writing that is going to help. So, so I think if, you know, one of the things that work for hire to me has been... Um, has been another a benefit just like it has been to yeah. you. I think work for hire has taught me and has made me have to react in ways that I would never, you know, you can't be a prima donna when you're doing a work for hire. I mean, you got to get that stuff done in two weeks and it's what in two weeks. And, you know, it's it has been a a a good thing, but you do it whether you need um the income or not you gotta you feel like you gotta keep producing because you gotta show them that you're still in the game yeah no I think it's it's definitely been something that's good for me and and it's a really it's a it's a pace that I think can be difficult over over a long term so um I'm really glad we had this conversation because it's just something for me as a writer that just really has made me think um and it's so great Sorry, yeah. I was just going to say, it's no, great to see the up. silver lining in, in the benefits and those experiences, but I think it's important, um, especially thinking about the audience of this podcast and that there are other Latinx, other Latinx writers, aspiring Latinx writers, who it's important that we point out to them that this is another cost 
to us physically, mentally, emotionally, that non-marginalized authors don't have to pay. They don't have to, like the work doesn't take this same kind of toll on them because they are getting bigger contracts, right? And so, yes, we're going to find the silver linings and we're going to see the benefits and how all these opportunities help us hone our craft, but it doesn't, it's still not fair is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I I think that, that this brings us back to where we started, which was, you know, how do we increase the share of Latin um, representation in children's books? And I think it comes back to why would someone want to do this and what do they want to do? Um, And what, what do we want this work to look like for a kid who's 10 years old right now and who in another 15 years might be getting their, their first book contract? What do we want this to look like then? Um, I want it to look different, I think is, is the, the really important part. So one of the questions we have is uh, things seem to be sometimes sort of secret, right? Like there seems to be a lot in publishing that's unsaid, that's shrouded in secrecy. Why is that? How do we change that? Harry, why don't we get you get us started? Uh, well, my other life, I I had I, I worked, you know, I worked for a living too, for another living, and uh, you were always told don't share your salary with your coworkers um, because everyone is treated differently. Now, what that meant to me, um, and I'm going to give you a story uh, from the dark ages. But I was hired in 1971 and at the phone company in the engineering department as an engineer. And then eventually came to find out that the men that were hired at the same time, same credentials, uh, were making. Now, this was back when I was making $9,000 was the top that a woman could get in that particular job and a man could get. It was either 12 or 15. It doesn't matter. That was an awful whole lot of money, a third, at least a third more than what women were getting. So when it's real money to them, so they don't want you to to talk. So there is secrecy. There was secrecy about salary. There's secrecy. And when I became a, um, you know, a supervisor, a person that hired people, um, there was secrecy and, you know, what I offered this person versus what I offered that person, you know, because I really wanted that particular person to be in that department because I needed to fill that that niche. And I think when you're acquiring books, um, you're going to have that same need for secrecy because if you don't, all the natives are going to get restless and you're going to end up having to spend an awful whole lot of money that you don't want to spend. I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend because absolutely, you know, the women took AT&T to court and we got that money back. But it's, you know, I, I don't, I'm not surprised that there is that much secrecy because if everybody knew how much everybody was making, if everybody knew what, what pack, you know, what packages you're getting, um, you would want, you would have people asking uh, their due and not being satisfied with less than what their due was. It's an amazing story, Terry. Sada. Um, well, I think that secrecy definitely benefits the publishing industry. And that's why it's so important that we have organizations like We Need Diverse Books. And is it the Children's Book Council, uh, Council where they're like kind of looking at the information that's actually out there where they can talk about how many books that have been published. 
um, that are written by underrepresented creators, how many editors um, that, that are of underrepresented backgrounds that are actually published, uh, that are actually participating in the publishing industry. But that's only the outward facing information that that can kind of be culled from the things that are that are there and that also require work where someone's actually having to go through and read every um, book and kind of cat uh, categorize it. But that's a lot of work that's kind of incumbent on other groups to do it. I feel like there needs to be more accountability in general in the publishing industry. I mean, we're talking about advances and, and, and other issues, but I think a lot of the things that you know Cynthia and Lakin brought up about a representation and how much hard work we have to do on our end to kind of increase um, awareness about our stories or just get kind of traction behind our stories. Um, a lot of that work I feel should be fall onto the publishing industry that they need to take more accountability in the steps that they're taking. And it's not enough to just do like this DEI work or say they have a commitment to diverse voices, um, but really kind of do some of that soul searching where they can kind of identify the issues that they're facing and the blind spots that they have within the industry. So there was an interesting study done by the Native American Journalists Association where they looked at coverage of um, stories produced by the New York Times on um, indigenous communities and indigenous themes. And they found that there were 800 stereotypes uh, published in 300 articles that the New York Times had produced, 800 stereotypes about um, Native American communities. And they actually have created this bingo card of like stereotypes about Native communities. Like if they're talking about poverty or alcoholism or dancing or any of those things so that you can kind of tick those boxes and see, am I like overrepresenting something, um, stereotypes in, in my coverage? And the New York Times response to this was when they were called out on this, um, was to say that, no, we're doing everything fine. We're doing our due diligence. They don't have one Native American reporter on their um, on their staff. And um, Naja finally rescinded their invitation to come and join their annual conference. And the reason I talk about this is because once again, when you have something that, uh, well, it doesn't have to do with children's literature, it is like a major media corporation. And when they're kind of like the gold standard about the stories that we tell and information that we that we give people in terms of keeping themselves informed. And when they're making this level of mistakes, think about how that might translate to the publishing industry when you know the media is constantly looking at accountability and making sure that they're completely transparent and, and making the story accurate. But if they're making that mistake, what mistakes are being made in the publishing industry when they're not holding themselves accountable or where they're not uh, maybe putting in the mechanisms in place where they can really kind of see the areas they're making mistakes. So on that level, beyond the, um, the advances, which of course I would love to, to always be more, um, I think that the secrecy harms us in other ways, you know, when that information is not being shared and, and we're not really able to look at some of those other things that, or decisions that are being made that might harm the community. Lincoln. So again, everything the publishing industry does, including the informational gatekeeping, exists to maintain the status quo. Vox published a really great article recently um, in the wake of the PRH SNS antitrust trial, 
titled book publishers just spent three weeks in court arguing they have no idea what they're doing, which is just a hilarious title <laughs> to begin with and so accurate. And there's a section that I think speaks to this so well. It says, it suits publishers to describe their industry as illogical, quirky, or romantic. Such a depiction of publishing gives cover to the status quo in which the industry is 76% white and 95% of books published between 1950 and 2018 were written by white people. If publishing isn't really a business, but an investment in people's dreams, then there are no structural inequalities that publishers have to worry about that might have led to this state of affairs. And since those structural inequalities don't exist, they can't possibly be exacerbated by further industry consolidation. And I think this really speaks to the fact that publishing likes to gatekeep information the same way that it gatekeeps access to the industry itself, because it doesn't actually want to be held accountable because it doesn't actually want to change. It likes being a predominantly white industry and its lack of transparency makes that possible. And this is really the main reason I spent the entire summer, you know, hundreds of hours putting together a 10-week debut author boot camp that is set to launch in, launch in mid-September to provide guidance and emotional support and just in general mentorship to authors going through the debut process. Because as we've been discussing, staying in this career is not easy. Like if you don't have someone behind the scenes telling you what things mean or how they work or how to best advocate for yourself this industry is going to chew you up and spit you out. And if you're marginalized, it is even more ruthless. And so one of the ways, one of the best ways that we can fight back is to share what we know and to be generous with our wisdom and to look at the success of other marginalized authors as being intrinsically connected to our own because it is. Because unfortunately, when one of us fails, it is then used as justification to invest less in authors of color across the board. So we can't let each other fail, especially if that failure is simply the result of trying to navigate an industry, you know, entrenched in secrecy and informational gatekeeping. Cynthia. Absolutely. All of, all of, all of, all of, that. All of the above. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I'm just going to add um, that, yeah, it does not, we know who we know who's benefited by this secrecy, but who's not is particularly underrepresented creators. And I just want to say, like, oh, this sounds like wonderful, and I wish I had that tool. I this is my debut year, and I wish I had these, like, what, what, like, I was just talking about last year, because yeah, we also have like zero tools. Like, we have no education, no training, no guidance, like. Well, there's a little pamphlet that they give you a little brochure, but we have nothing really to arm us to to go out there in and and to ask our worth and then and and to promote and to do all these things that we're supposed to do. So it's um yeah, that's that's all I had to add. Yeah, it's it's a lot. So finally, I wanted to end with the question about um what are some common misconceptions? We sort of tiptoed around these. Sada, you raised the issue of, um, of stereotypes. So what are some common misconceptions about the Latin community and how do we dismantle them? Is there one thing you wish everybody knew about 
your community because I'm not going to suggest that the Latin community is, is one group, is one identity, but as we know, it is in fact many, many different ones. What's the one thing you wish people knew about the community to which you feel that you belong or with which you identify? And what are some misconceptions? Carrie, can you start us off? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing, um, and it's so um, you know it's so obvious, but um, people think that Latinx is a monolith that we are all the same, um, we have the same experience, and we don't. We we don't. We're just totally individuals. We share a common thread of Spanish co colonization, which is not anything to be happy about. But we have we each country developed individually and we have very different cultural backgrounds that have shaped us uh, differently and we have had. And then once you're here in the United States, you have a different experience. If you're, um, if you're a born in another country and then you come from the, to the United States, you have a totally different experience than if folks who are you know, second generation. And all of this, we're just talking about Hey, I have one Latinx writer. I've checked off the, uh, I checked off the, the box, and it's fine. But it's not, it's not the uh, the experience of an immigrant living living in the Bronx or in Miami, is totally different from an the the experience of an immigrant living in Kansas, and um, social economic levels, whatever affects the general community affects us, and we you can't treat everyone the same as one. So I think dismantle, how do you dismantle them is just by telling our truth, writing our truth and, and enough of it that it'll have to be picked up and, and bought, I hope. Tada. I couldn't agree more with Terry. Um, I think that the idea of the uh, Latinx experience as a monolithic experience is probably the biggest misconception when really, I mean, we're like every color of the rainbow, we're all different types of religions and, um, and backgrounds. And even within the same families, our experience can differ so much. Like for example, um, in my family, my father's from Ayacucho, which is an Andean province of, of Peru. And he married my mother who was a white woman from Idaho. So I'm a mixed, I have a mixed heritage. My cousin, um, my, uncle married a woman who was of Lebanese and indigenous background. And so if you look at us, you know, side by side, we look completely different and the world relates to us very differently. She grew up in Ayacucho and now has lived all over the world. But even within the family, our experiences are so diverse. Um, and then like, you know, just because I'm Peruvian or Peruvian American, the experience that I would have as a Peruvian would be very different than someone from the jungle or someone who grew up um, in one of the like um, coastal cities of the desert other than Lima. And like at the beginning, I was comparing myself to Monica Brown and thinking nobody wanted to take me, but the stories that Monica and I would write are so different because mine is a very Andean heritage. And she grew up um, with artists um, from the capital of Lima and she is now Jewish. I could not write the stories that Monica writes, just like it would be a challenge for her to write the stories that I write. So I think that that's the biggest um, challenge that we face kind of, diversifying that perspective of the stories that each of us can bring to the table and how different they are. Lincoln. So I mentioned this briefly earlier, but 
since entering traditional publishing, something multiple publishing professionals and even some teachers and librarians have either said outright or insinuated to me is that our community doesn't read. And beyond the fact that this is incredibly racist and ignorant, it's also really harmful because these attitudes affect how many books featuring Latinx characters that a publisher acquires. And it also affects how big of a marketing budget that these books receive. So going back to that idea of, you know, some of these things being a self-fulfilling prophecy, publishers acquire books by Latinx authors, even though they don't really have high expectations for them. And then they make decisions that make that book's failure pretty much inevitable because they have no idea how to market directly to readers in our community. They know how to sell to booksellers, but when it comes to actual communities of color, they really have no clue. And that's why like Sara and Cynthia both said, it technically would be a good business decision to invest in our stories, but that's only if publishers are also willing to invest in marketing to our community and doing it the right way. But instead of trying to figure out what that right way is, they just throw up their hands say, well, that community just must not read and blames a book's failure on lack of interest instead of the truth that the book was undiscoverable and therefore inaccessible. So we really can't count on publishers to do any kind of internal work to, to dismantle these racist ways of thinking that then drive their decision-making. So instead we have to create our own spaces and our own opportunities for connecting directly with Latinx readers and one of the ways that Las Musas has done that is by creating the Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. This year will be the third year of the festival's existence. It takes place on October 13th and 14th. And um, through the festival website, we're able to stream directly into classrooms and libraries. And we're able to connect with Latinx students and Latinx educators and anyone else interested in learning more about our books and our community. And we've done so much work behind the scenes to get publishers invested in us and to attract community partners and volunteers and just people willing to help us spread the word about this event. We have an online database of Latinx Kidlet books with you know, over 500 listings growing every day where people can sort by the type of representation featured in the book and geographic location and themes and whether or not there's a translated or bilingual edition. Every year we give away entire class sets of books to schools whose students submit questions for our festival panelists. There are educator resources that teachers can use all year long, including many craft lessons. And soon we'll be helping to facilitate virtual and in-person author visits so kids can get that human interaction with our authors, You know, therefore building those connections that we know are so essential. So we're doing everything that we can to help fill in those gaps in terms of support for Latinx authors by giving them this space and this platform to be able to reach readers directly. But even though we've accomplished some really incredible things over the past three years, there's still so much work to do and really no way for us to do all of it alone. Um, and since we can't count on publishers, we have to be able to count on our community. Um, so if anyone listening, if you've been looking for a way to better support Latinx authors, I encourage you to donate to the festival on our website, latinxkidlitbookfestival.com, um, because as we've been discussing today, hoping for progress, it really isn't working. It's not enough. We, we really have to make that progress ourselves. Cynthia. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, and, and it's just in the same vein, I wanted to add a little bit of what Sarah was saying that, that this misconception about just like we're, we're all the same, we just have this one story, we just check this off the list and that's it, that's our Latinx title for the year. So that's why we also created Latinx speech. So to have these like opportunities that all of the, of the creators could show, could pitch their stories directly to the publishing in industry the different professionals, but this is for agented and unagented uh, creators, both authors and illustrators, so that they can connect. Because sometimes you only get one chance to, to go to someone in a publishing house, and if they decline, then that's it. So if there's someone else there that could get connected with your story, and then your agent knows who to, um, who to go to. So that's, that's something that all of the co-founders of um, Sarah's here also, that we created these particular event because we knew that there was there was not this there was like a lack of of um, connection and we needed a, a platform to network and connect each other uh, I've heard some great resources here I love everything that everyone's sharing what I wanted to add is that if there were one thing I would want people to know about the Latin community and Latin Latin writers in the United States it really is that we are here that there is often I meet people who will tell me, oh, I've looked so hard and I can't find a children's book, you know, for this audience or about this identity. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I can think of three different authors who I know personally who are writing books about that. And because the access isn't there, um, because there's not the awareness of those books, People are often like, well, I would love to teach a Latin title, but I'm going to teach Diary of the Wimpy Kid again. No, no shame for people who are teaching Diary of the Wimpy Kid. It's great. Um, but they're, you know, they're going to do the same thing again and again because they feel that they can't find that representation. And that as an author is probably the thing I struggle with the most is the sense of like, I'm right here and I'm doing the thing or I have a friend who's doing the thing and that representation that you're looking for often is there if you're willing to come find us um, and to use the resources that Sada and Lakin um, and Cynthia have shared, everybody has shared so many wonderful places where you can find our books and so that's what I would really want people to know is that our books are there, they're available. Um, and that we really want to engage with our readers and engage with the families that are sharing our books and the educators that are sharing our books. So I hope you'll come find us. So if you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books. And be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, Please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also sign up for the Las Musas newsletter to have podcast updates, as well as other Las Musas news. So all of these books that I've been telling you about, such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox.